A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2, Chapter 1, Parts 7 and 8. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter 1, Parts 7 and 8. Part 7. The Oligarchic Revolution. At Athens in these months there was distress, fear, and discontent. How deeply the people felt the pressure of the long war is uttered in the comedy of Lysistrata, or Dame Dispander, which the poet Aristophanes brought out at this crisis. The heroine unites all the women of the belligerent cities of Greece into a league to force the men to make peace. Under the ribald humour there pierces here and there a note of pathos not to be found in the poet's earlier peace plays, the Acarnians and the Peace. War is not a time for marrying and giving in marriage. Never mind us married women, says Lysistrata. It is the thought of the maidens growing old at home that goes to my heart. Do not men grow old too? asks the Proboulos, who argues with her. Ah, but it is not the same thing. A man, though his hair be grey, can soon pick up a young girl. But a woman's season is short, and if she miss her chance then, no one will marry her. But the fear of Persia was the shadow which brooded darkest over Athens at this time, and there was also a lurking suspicion of treachery, a dread that the oligarchical party were planning a revolution, or even intriguing with the enemy at Decalia. Two months after the Lysistrata, at the great feast of Dionysus, Aristophanes brought out a play whose plot had nothing to do with politics, the Celebrants of the Thesmophoria, but the fears that were in the hearts of many were echoed by the poet, when his chorus called upon Athena, the sole keeper of our city, to come as the hater of tyrants. Lovers of the democracy might well pray to the guardian lady of the city. The opportunity for which the oligarchs had waited so long had come at last. For outside their own ranks there was a large section of influential men who were dissatisfied with the existing forms of government, and, though opposed to oligarchy, desired a modification of the constitution. There was a fair show of reason for arguing that the foreign policy had been mismanaged by the democracy, and that men of education and knowledge had not a sufficient influence on the conduct of affairs. The chief of those who desired to see the establishment of a moderate polity, neither an extreme democracy nor an oligarchy, but partaking of both, was Theramenes, whose father, Hagnon, was one of the Probuli. The watchword of Theramenes and his party was, the old constitution of our fathers. By this they meant not the constitution of Solon, but the constitution before Solon, they interpreted the whole history of Athens in accordance with their political views. They condemned Solon as the author of democracy, the first of a long line of mischievous demagogues. They made out that the Areopagus, and not Themistocles, was the hero of Salamis. They branded Aristides, founder of the Delian Confederacy, 
for organising a system which fed 20,000 idlers on the Allied cities. They represented Pericles as a man of no ideas of his own, but depending upon others to prompt him. After two centuries of evil government, the Athenians must go back to the times before Solon, and revive in some new form the constitution of Dracon. This constitution of Dracon, of which the chief feature was a council of four hundred, had never existed. It was fathered upon Dracon by Theramenes and his friends. The extreme oligarchs, though the ideal of Theramenes was not theirs, were ready in the first instance to act in concert with the moderate party for the purpose of upsetting the democracy. The soul of the plot was Antiphon of Ramnus, an eloquent orator and advocate, who had made his mark in the days of Cleon. He was unpopular on account of his undisguised oligarchical views. The historian Thucydides describes him as a man who in virtue fell short of none of his contemporaries, and by virtue is meant disinterested and able devotion to his party. Other active conspirators were Pisander, who had been in old days a partisan of Cleon, and Phrynichus, who was one of the commanders of the fleet stationed at Samos. The prospects of the movement were good. It was favoured by the Probuli and by most of the officers of the fleet. Moreover, the Athenians, as they had shown already by the appointment of the Probuli, were in a temper, with the fear of Persia before their eyes, to sacrifice their constitution, if such a sacrifice would save the city. Alcibiades had entered into negotiations with the officers at Samos, promising to secure an alliance with Tissaphernes, but representing the abolition of democracy as a necessary condition. Most of the oligarchical conspirators were pleased with the scheme, and even the army was seduced by the idea of receiving pay from the great king. Some, indeed, of the more sagacious thought they saw through the designs of Alcibiades, and Phrynichus, who aspired himself to be the leader of the revolution, detected a rival, and tried by various intrigues to thwart him. Alcibiades was certainly no friend of oligarchy, but it was his policy in any case to upset the existing democracy, which would never recall him. If an oligarchy were established, he might intervene to restore the democracy, and in return for such a service all would be forgiven. But he would have to be guided by events. Pisander was sent to Athens to prepare the way for the return of Alcibiades, and a modification of the democracy. The people were at first indignant at the proposal to change the constitution and recall the renegade. The Eumolpidae denounced the notion of having any dealings with the profaner of the mysteries. But the cogent argument that the safety of Athens depended on separating Persia from the Peloponnesians, and that this could be managed only by Alcibiades, and that the great king would not trust Athens so long as she was governed by a popular constitution, had its effect and there was, moreover, powerful but secret influence at work through the Hetairii, or political clubs. It was voted that Pisander and other envoys should be sent to negotiate a treaty with Tissaphernes, and to arrange matters with Alcibiades. It appeared at once that Alcibiades had promised more than he could perform. There had indeed been a serious rupture between Tissaphernes and Sparta. Lycas, a Spartan commissioner, who conferred with the satrap, denounced the terms of the treaties. He 
he pointed out the monstrous consequences of the clause which assigned to the king power over all the countries which his ancestors had held, for this would involve Persian dominion over Thessaly and other lands of northern Greece. On such terms, he said, we will not have our fleet paid, and he asked for a new treaty. Tissaphernes departed in anger. But when it came to a question of union with Athens, Tissaphernes showed that he did not wish to break with the Peloponnesians. He proposed impossible conditions to the Athenian envoys, and then made a new treaty with the Spartans, modifying the clause to which Lycas objected. The territory which the Spartans recognized as Persian was now expressly confined to Asia. But though the reasons for a revolution, so far as they concerned Tissaphernes and Alcibiades, seemed thus to be removed, the preparations had advanced so far that the result of the mission of Pisander produced no effect on the course of events. The conspirators did not scruple to use menaces and even violence. Androcles, a strong democrat, who had been prominent in procuring the condemnation of Alcibiades, was murdered. Some others of less note were made away with in like manner, and there was a general feeling of fear and mistrust in the city. But there was a widespread conviction that the existence of Athens was at stake, and that some change in the constitution was inevitable. The news that Abydus and Lampsacus had revolted may have hastened the final act. The revolution was peaceably effected through the cooperation of the ten probuli. A decree was passed that the probuli and twenty others chosen by the people should form a commission of thirty who should jointly devise proposals for the safety of the state and lay them before the assembly on a fixed day. When the day came, the assembly met at the temple of Poseidon at Colonus, about a mile from the town. After preliminary measures to secure impunity for a proposal involving a subversion of existing laws, a radical change was brought forward and carried. The sovereign assembly was to consist in future not of the whole people, but of a body of about five thousand, those who were strongest physically and financially. A hundred men were to be chosen, ten by each tribe, for the purpose of electing and enrolling the five thousand. Pay for almost all public offices was to be abolished. To these revolutionary measures a saving clause was attached. They were to remain in force as long as the war lasts, and thus the people was more easily induced to pass them. But this was only preliminary. A constitution had still to be framed. When the five thousand were elected, they chose a commission of one hundred men to draw up a constitution. The scheme which they framed is highly remarkable, as a criticism on certain defects in the constitution which was now to be overthrown. The body of five thousand were not to act as an assembly. There was, in fact, to be no assembly. The five thousand were to be divided into four parts, and each part was to act as council for a year in turn. The council would elect the higher magistrates from its own number. Thus, the difficulties of administration which arose in the double system, where the council's action was hampered by the assembly, would be done away with, and the inclusion of the generals and magistrates in the council was a necessary consequence. Under the democracy, the holders of office could influence the assembly against the council. Under the new scheme, there would be no room for such collisions. One fatal defect in this scheme was the size of the administrative body, 
and if it had been tried we may be sure that it would not have worked. But it was never tried. It passed the Assembly as a scheme to come into force in the future, but in the meantime a further proposal of the hundred commissioners enacted that the state should be administered by a council of four hundred, in which each of the ten tribes was to be represented by forty members. It would seem, but it is not quite certain, that the election of the council was managed in the following way. The assembly, which created it, chose five men under the title of presidents, who were empowered to nominate one hundred councillors, and each of these councillors co-opted three others. But both the presidents in their nomination, and the one hundred councillors in their co-option, were limited to a number of candidates who were previously chosen by the tribes. The four hundred were instituted as merely a provisional government, but the entire administration was placed in their hands. The management of the finances and the appointment of the magistrates. The five thousand were to meet only when summoned by the four hundred, so that the assembly ceased to have any significance, and the provisional constitution was an unadulterated oligarchy. The Council of Four Hundred was proclaimed to be a revival of the imaginary constitution of Dracon, under which Athens flourished before demagogues led her into evil paths. But the whole fabric of Cleisthenes, the Ten Tribes, and the Deems was retained. The existing Council of Five Hundred went out of office before the end of the civil year, and seven days later the administration of the Four Hundred began. Throughout these transactions intimidation was freely used by the conspirators, and we are told that they went with hidden daggers into the council chamber, and forced the five hundred to retire. Thucydides admires the ability of the men who carried out this revolution. An easy thing it certainly was not, one hundred years after the fall of the tyrants, to destroy the liberties of the Athenian people who were not only a free, but during more than one half of this time, had been an imperial people. It may be asked why a provisional government was introduced, instead of proceeding at once to the establishment of the permanent constitution which the hundred commissioners had framed. Here we touch upon the inwardness of the political situation. The two constitutions betray the double influence at work in the revolution. The establishment of the four hundred was a concession made to Antiphon and the oligarchs by Theramenes and the moderates, who regarded it as only preliminary, while the oligarchs hoped to render it permanent. End of Part 7 Part 8 Fall of the 400 The Polity The Democracy Restored For more than three months the 400 governed the city with a high hand, and then they were overthrown. Their success had been largely due to the absence of so many of the most democratic citizens in the fleet at Samos, and it was through the attitude of the fleet that their fall was brought about. The sailors rose against the oligarchic officers and the oligarchs of Samos, who were conspiring against the popular party, and had murdered the exile Hyperbolus. The chief leaders of this reaction were Thrasybulus and Thrasyllus, who persuaded the soldiers and sailors to proclaim formally their adhesion to the democracy and their hostility to the four hundred. The assembly, which had been abolished at Athens, was called into being at Samos, and the army, representing the Athenian people, deposed the generals and elected others. 
the Athenians at Samos felt that they were in as good a position as the Athenians at Athens, and they hoped still to obtain the alliance of Persia, through the good offices of Alcibiades, whose recall and pardon were formally voted. Thrasybulus fetched Alcibiades to Samos, and he was elected a general. The hoped-for alliance with Persia was not effected, but it was at least something that Tissaphernes did not use the large Phoenician fleet which he had at Aspendus against the Athenians, and that his relations with the Peloponnesians were becoming daily worse. He went to Aspendus, but he never brought the ships, and it was a matter of speculation what the object of his journey was. Thucydides records his own belief that Tissaphernes wanted to wear out and to neutralize the Hellenic forces. His object was to damage them both, while he was losing time in going to Aspendus, and to paralyze their action and not strengthen either of them by his alliance. For if he had chosen to finish the war, finished it might have been once for all, as any one may see. The Athenians at Samos now proposed to sail straight to Athens and destroy the four hundred. The proposal shows how much the fleet despised the Peloponnesian navy, which, under its incompetent admiral, Astyochus, had been spending the summer in doing nothing. But to leave Samos would have been madness, and Alcibiades saved them from the blunder of sacrificing Iona and the Hellespont. Negotiations were begun with the oligarchs at Athens, and Alcibiades expressed himself satisfied with the assembly of five thousand, but insisted that the four hundred should be abolished. As a matter of fact, the overtures from Samos were welcome to the majority of the four hundred, who were dissatisfied with their colleagues and their own position. The nature of an oligarchy which supplants a democracy was beginning to show itself. The instant an oligarchy is established, says Thucydides, the promoters of it disdain mere equality, and everybody thinks that he ought to be far above everybody else. Whereas in a democracy, when an election is made, a man is less disappointed at a failure, because he has not been competing with his equals. Moreover, the four hundred were at first professedly established as merely a temporary government, preliminary to the establishment of a polity which would be less an oligarchy than a qualified democracy. Such a polity was the ideal of Theramenes, and he was impatient to constitute it. Thus there was a cleavage in the four hundred, the extreme oligarchs on one side, led by Antiphon and Phrynichus, the moderate reformers on the other, led by Theramenes. While the moderates had the support of the army at Samos behind them, the extreme party looked to the enemy for support, and sent envoys to Sparta for the purpose of concluding a peace. In the meantime they fortified Aetionia, the mole which formed the northern side of the entrance to the great harbour of Piraeus. The object was to command the entrance so as to be able either to admit the Lacedaemonians, or to exclude the fleet of Samos. When the envoys returned from Sparta, without having made terms, and when a Peloponnesian squadron was seen in the Saronic Gulf, the movement against the oligarchs took shape. Phrynichus was slain by foreign assassins in the market-place. The soldiers who were employed in building the fort at Aetionia were instigated by Theramenes to declare against the oligarchy, and after a great tumult at the Piraeus, the walls of the fort were pulled down, to the cry of, Whoever wishes the five thousand and not the four hundred to rule, let him come and help. 
nobody in the crowd really knew whether the five thousand existed as an actually constituted body or not. When the fort was demolished, an assembly was held in the theatre on the slope of Munichia. The agitation subsided, and the peaceable negotiations with the four hundred ensued. A day was fixed for an assembly in the theatre of Dionysus, to discuss a settlement on the basis of the constitution of the five thousand. But on the very day, just as the assembly was about to meet, the appearance of a Lacedaemonian squadron, which had been hovering about off the coast of Salamis, produced a temporary panic and a general rush to the Piraeus. It was only a fright, so far as the Piraeus was concerned, but there were other serious dangers ahead, as every one saw. The safety of Euboea was threatened, and the Athenians depended entirely on Euboea, now that they had lost Attica. The Lacedaemonian fleet, forty-two ships under Agisandridas, doubled Sunium, and sailed into Oropus. The Athenians sent thirty-six ships under Thymocheres to Eritrea, where they were forced to fight at once, and were utterly defeated. All Euboea then revolted, except Oreus in the north, which was a settlement of Athenian clerics. At no moment, perhaps, since the Persian War, was the situation at Athens so alarming. She had no reserve of ships. The army at Samos was hostile. Euboea, from which she derived her supplies, was lost, and there was feud and sedition in the city. It was a moment which might have inspired the Lacedaemonians to operate with a little vigour both by land and sea. Athens could not have resisted a combined attack of Agis from Decalia and Agesandridas at the Piraeus. But the Lacedaemonians were, as Thucydides observes, very convenient enemies, and they let the opportunity slip. The Battle of Eritrea struck, however, the hour of doom for the oligarchs. An assembly in the Pnyx deposed the four hundred, and voted that the government should be placed in the hands of a body consisting of all those who could furnish themselves with arms, which body should be called the five thousand. Legislators, or nomothetai, were appointed to draw up the details of the constitution, and all pay for offices was abolished. Most of the oligarchs escaped to Decalia, and one of them betrayed the fort of Enoe on the frontier of Boeotia to the enemy. Two, Antiphon and Archeptolemus, were executed. The chief promoter of the new constitution was Theramenes. It was a constitution such as he had conceived from the beginning, though apparently not actually the same as that which had been proposed by the hundred commissioners. Thucydides praises it as a constitution in which the rule of the many and the rule of the few were fairly tempered. It was the realisation of the ultimate intentions of most of those who had promoted the original resolution. It is certain that Theramenes, from the very beginning, desired to organise a polity, with democracy and oligarchy duly mixed. His acquiescence in a temporary oligarchy was a mere matter of necessity, and the nickname of Cothurnus, the loose buskin that fits either foot, given to him by the oligarchs, was not deserved. In the meantime, the supine Spartan admiral, Astyochus, had been superseded by Mindarus, and the Peloponnesian fleet, invited by Pharnabazus, sailed for the Hellespont. The Athenian fleet under Thrasybulus and Thrasyllus followed, and forced them to fight in the straits. 
the Athenians, with seventy-six ships, were extended along the shore of the Chersonese, and the object of the Peloponnesians, who had ten more ships, was to outflank and so prevent the enemy from sailing out of the straits, and at the same time to press their centre in upon the land. The Athenians, to thwart this intention, extended their own right wing, and in doing so weakened the whole line. The Peloponnesians were victorious on the centre, but Thrasybulus, who was on the right wing, took advantage of their disorder in the moment of victory, and threw them into panic. The engagement on the Athenian left was round the Cape of Kinosema, out of sight of the rest of the battle, and resulted after hard fighting in the repulse of the Peloponnesians. This victory heartened the Athenians. It was followed immediately by the recovery of Kidzikus, which had revolted. Mindarus had to send for the squadron which lay in the waters of Euboea, but only a remnant reached him. The rest of the ships were lost in a storm off Mount Athos. Another Athenian success at Abydus closed the military operations of the year, but, owing to lack of funds, the fleet had to disperse for the winter. Tissaphernes was ill-satisfied with the success of Athens, and when Alcibiades paid him a visit at Sardis during the winter, he arrested him, but Alcibiades made his escape. The Peloponnesians were now vigorously supported by Pharnabadzus, who was a far more valuable and trustworthy ally than Tissaphernes. In the spring Mindarus laid siege to Kidzikus, and the satrap supported him with an army. The Athenian fleet of eighty-six ships succeeded in passing the Hellespont unseen, and in three divisions, under Alcibiades, Theramenes, and Thrasybulus, took Mindarus by surprise. After a hard-fought battle, both by land and sea, the Athenians were entirely victorious. Mindarus was slain, and about sixty triremes were taken or sunk. This annihilated the Peloponnesian navy. A laconic dispatch announcing the defeat to the Spartan ephors was intercepted by the Athenians. Our success is over. Mindarus is slain. The men are starving. We know not what to do. Sparta immediately made proposals of peace to Athens on the basis of the status quo. It would have been wise of Athens to accept the offer and obtain relief from the pressure of the garrison at Decalia but there is no doubt that the feeling in the navy was entirely against a peace which did not include the restoration of the power of Athens in the Aegean and Asia Minor, and the victory of Kidzikus seemed to assure the promise of its speedy recovery, notwithstanding the purse of Pharnabadzus. The Spartan overtures were rejected. The victory of Kidzikus led to a restoration of the unity of the Athenian state, which for a year had been divided into two parts, centred in Athens and Samos. The democratic party at Athens, encouraged by the success of the thoroughly democratic navy, were able to upset the polity of Theramenes, and to restore the democracy with the unlimited franchise and the Cleisthenic Council of five hundred. The most prominent of the leaders of this movement was Cleophon, the lyre-maker, a man of the same class as Hyperbolus and Cleon, and endowed with the same order of talent. Like Cleon, he was a strong imperialist, and he was now the mouthpiece of the prevailing sentiment for war. His financial ability seems to have been no less remarkable than that of Cleon. The remuneration of offices, which was an essential part of the Athenian democracy, was revived as a matter of course, but Cleophon instituted a new payment, for which his name was best remembered by posterity. 
This was the two-obol payment. Though we know that it was introduced by Cleophon, it is not recorded for what purpose it was paid or who received it. Some have supposed that it was simply the wage of the judges, that the old fee of three obols was revived in the reduced form of two obols. But this can hardly be the case. The two obol payment is mentioned in a manner which implies that it was something completely novel. The probability is that it was a disbursement intended to relieve the terrible pressure of the protracted war upon the poor citizens whose means of livelihood was reduced or cut off by the presence of the enemy in Attica. And we may guess that the pension of two obols a day was paid to all who were not in the receipt of other public money for their services in the field, on shipboard, or in the law courts. To give employment to the indigent by public works was another part of the policy of Cleophon, who herein followed the example of Pericles. In the first years of this statesman's influence, the building of a new temple of Athena on the Acropolis, probably begun after the peace of Nicias, but abandoned during the Sicilian expedition, was continued. It was close to the north cliff, on the site of the royal palace of Mycenaean days, and seems to have been designed to replace the oldest temple of Athena, which held the ancient wooden statue of the goddess. This new temple Athena shared with Erechtheus, and though less magnificent than the Parthenon, it was the true centre of the city's worship of her patron goddess. Detailed accounts of the money paid to the craftsmen and labourers, citizens, metics and slaves, who worked on the building and its sculptures, have survived, and it is interesting to find that the sculptors of the panels of the frieze were paid at standard peace rates. That this graceful Ionic temple with the porch of the maidens should be completed in years of sore need is a striking tribute to Athenian resilience, and in this new confidence the old system of tribute was restored. The years following the rejection of the Spartan overtures were marked by operations in the Propontis and its neighbourhood, the Athenians, under the able and strenuous leadership of Alcibiades, slowly gained ground. Thassos and Selimbria were won back. At Chrysopolis, a toll station was established, at which ships coming from the Euxine had to pay one-tenth of the value of their freight. Then Chalcedon was besieged and made tributary. And finally, Byzantium was starved into capitulation, so that Athens once more completely commanded the Bosphorus. Meanwhile, Pharnabazus had made an arrangement to conduct Athenian envoys to Susa for the purpose of coming to terms with the great king. Nearer home, Athens lost Nicaea to the Megarians, and Pylos was at length recovered by Sparta. As the distinctive feature of the last eight years of the Peloponnesian War was the combination between Persia and Sparta, we may divide this period into three parts, according to the nature of the Persian cooperation. During the first two years, it is the satrap Tissaphernes who supports the Peloponnesian operations, and Athens loses nearly all Ionia. Then the satrap Pharnabazus takes the place of Tissaphernes as the active ally of the Peloponnesians. The military operations are chiefly in the Hellespont, and Athens gradually recovers many of her losses. But the affairs of the West had begun to engage the attention of the great king Darius, who, aware that the jealousy of the two satraps hinders an effective policy, sends down his younger son Cyrus to take the place of Tissaphernes at Sardis, with jurisdiction over Cappadocia, Phrygia, 
and Lydia. The government of Tissaphernes is confined to Caria. The arrival of Cyrus on the scene marks a new turning point in the progress of the war. It was a strange sight to see the common enemy of Hellas ranged along with the victors of Plataea against the victors of Salamis. It was a shock to men of Panhellenic feeling, and it was fitting that at the great Panhellenic gathering at Olympia a voice of protest should be raised. Men of western Hellas beyond the sea could look with a calmer view on the politics of the east, and it was a man of western Hellas, the Leontine Gorgias himself, who lifted up an eloquent voice against the wooing of Persian favour by Greek states. Rather, he said, go to war against Persia. End of part 8